everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. My name is Ellie, and I am joined tonight by my co-host, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Elle. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And yourself? Oh, pretty good. That's good. Good. And we are also thrilled to welcome our special guest co-host tonight, Dana Bowman. Dana is an author and speaker who lives in a sweet small town in the Midwest. She has been published in Substance.com, The After Party Magazine, The Fix, and others, and is a proud author at MomsyBlog.com. Her book, Bottled, How to Survive Early Recovery, published by Central Recovery Press, is now available on Amazon, excuse me, Amazon.com and at bookstores. Welcome back to the show, Dana. We're so happy you're here. Yay, I'm happy to be here, too. Welcome. <laughs> well, when we think about triggers, and we've done several shows about triggers, we often think of events or external situations that make us want to drink. As we know, however, alcoholism is a thinking disease. What makes us want to numb or escape or drink has less to do with external situations or people and more to do with the way that we metabolize and interpret our experiences. Um, for example, when I was a stay-at-home mom and 5 p.m. would roll around, I felt that I deserved that drink like a reward, and the long hours and boredom would have set in and grounded me down, and the idea of giving my kids a bath or preparing dinner or doing any of those menial tasks without a drink to dull the sharp edges was just totally unthinkable to me when I was drinking. And it was my reward, my way to alter my mood. It was a cure for boredom and restlessness. But after I got sober, nothing external changed. My kids still needed baths. I still needed to prepare dinner. And I still sometimes, often, in fact, felt restless and bored. But what changed was the way that I processed these experiences and the story that I told myself about my life and my experiences altered. I basically changed the narrative. I learned to sit through and accept feelings just as they were without needing to change them, although I will admit that I still frequently want to. Um, I learned how to recognize that urge that I would get to numb or dull or escape and began to cultivate new ways of coping. So this show isn't really about the external triggers. We will talk about those, but rather our own internal landscapes. When we were in active alcoholism or addiction, we didn't have the awareness or the ability to know why we wanted to numb or to escape. All we knew was that when we felt uncomfortable or bored or sad, restless, stressed or angry, a drink made it better. The whole point when we were active was not to delve deeper into why we felt the way we did. The point was to avoid feeling at all. So that cycle of feeling and then trigger and then drink became so automatic and so robotic that we didn't even usually notice that we were developing a serious problem with alcohol. We had lost our ability to cope with the difficult feelings, or cope with any feelings sometimes, but difficult feelings in particular without the numbing crutch of a drink. So getting sober doesn't change triggery feelings or our external world. However, it does change how we react to them. So we wanted to start out tonight by talking about what the cycle of feeling and trigger drinking looked for us, what looked like for us when we were active in our alcoholism, and what talk about sort of what sorts of situations or emotions were the biggest triggers, and did a pattern set in or start to develop for when we would reach for a drink. Um, and you know, we wanted to at least begin tonight by talking about what that looked like while we were still active, while we were still drinking. So, Dana, let's start with you. What did that look like yeah. for you? I had to laugh 
when I started writing these down because they were so. Um, I'm, I think we kind of already touched on this. They're still the same things <laughs> that happen in my life now, but um, so but I just don't drink over them now. So let me explain what they were, and I'm pretty sure this isn't going to be like mind altering news. Um, or something, you know, that off the wall. First of all, for me, the real pattern was um, the sun going down. I was like, <laughs> I was mm. just keen and ready to go for that <laughs> evening celebration. And I felt like every day had to have some sort of memorable, amazing event that had to happen at the end of the day okay. because, yeah. my gosh, I deserved that. And <laughs> I was a romantic. I still am. I, I wanted just to have those little moments all the time. And and when I had small children, those little moments were right in front of me, but um, I needed them to be fueled with alcohol to really feel them. So I, I that was my first trigger was, you know, fatigue, you're getting tired, you're trying to cook dinner, and that's when that, boy, I deserve some sort of a big, huge flipping party right now. Like, we need to have a celebration. Mm. This evening needs to be about some tequila shots. And and you know hamburger helper, <laughs> and they don't go together really. But um, and I I remember telling my husband that I just felt at the beginning, giving up alcohol just seemed like I'm just gonna give up, you know, all the fun stuff. And I remember looking at me like, where's the fun? You know, like I don't get this. Mm. So that was one of my patterns. Um, five o'clock would come on, and we all moms know. I've been talking through the mom filter about the witching hour and all that. Um, but I think for me, deep down, what it really was, the trigger was just this inherent self-absorption. <laughs> and, you mm. know, people talk about being, like, morbidly obese. That was the term I kept coming up with is that I'm, I was, like, morbidly self-absorbed. I, I narrated my day. Like, I could remember going, and here's Dana doing the laundry, and here's Dana mm-hmm. cleaning the kitchen. And now Dana is thinking sad thoughts about how she misses her old life. And my whole day was this narrated little movie and um, in my head because I wanted to have something drama- dramatic or exciting. And when you're constantly narrating your thoughts and feelings, um, you tend to exaggerate them to make them more interesting. And I was so self-absorbed that I was miserable. That was; Those were the two main ones that I kind of felt like I kept going towards that fun angle and I just kept mulling over everything. And it, it really is tough to be a thinky person um, like I was and then to come up against that wall of, well, every thinking thought I'm having is sad, miserable, depressed, anxious. I can't fight this anymore, so I just need to have a drink. And it would work, you know, for a while. It would work. I don't know. Does that sound at all familiar? Oh, I can relate to absolutely every <laughs> single. I remember one oh, of the first recovery know. meetings I went to, somebody who was new and, and, and he he raised his hand and he said, I don't I don't really know how I'm supposed to say this, but does anybody else feel like they have like their own movie camera following them around all the time? Like they're sort of observing themselves from like over their right shoulder. <laughs> like every head in the room was nodding. Show. <laughs> yes. All the time. My own little was mental reality, reality show. show. <laughs> yeah. A very boring, sad reality show too at that, but it, it really was the only way I felt like I existed. And I still find myself, if I get into a place where I'm kind of quiet and tired and, um, like, just settled for a minute, that little voice comes back on, and it's so frightening. Oh, my God, 
I'm doing it again, you know, and then I just have to kind of go, shut up, self-absorbed narrator, Dana. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Make a sandwich, yeah. that kind of thing. So. How about Very you, Amanda? Easy. Does that sound familiar to you at all, or what was what are the sort of patterns that you would observe in terms of, like, your, you know, that sort of automatic or subconscious need to reach for a drink? Yeah, it, it, that sounds very familiar to me. There's actually so uh, there's a few. So for me, one was um, work. So in at work or homework, um, mm-hmm. you mean doing meaning doing stuff around the yard or laundry or stuff like that. So at work, I, I um, like I still am a little bit of an alcohol at work alcoholic. I am definitely an alcoholic. I am still. <laughs> Um, workaholic as well and um so i would you know i i was married at the time and i would work you know i'd go in at seven and i'd work till seven and we i and you've heard me say it before we have this beer fridge at work so it's literally an entire refrigerator full of beer and if i was there at five o'clock it was totally acceptable to go grab a beer or five mm-hmm. <laughs> And I would do that, and it was just something about, okay, I'm working past, you know, normal hours, and it was already a long day because I was in at 7, and I don't go to lunch. And, you know, I was like, okay, so I can have a beer to finish my day, and I can just kind of enjoy, you know, wrap up all my emails, wrap up what I need to do. And I felt that I deserved that. So I had, I didn't really realize it at the time, or, you know, till Dana, you just said that, like, I was very self-absorbed, like, I... I deserve this because I am working so damn hard. And I would do the same thing on the weekends. Um, I would do, my husband just was not into yard work, and I was into gardening and doing all these different things. And so I ended up doing, you know, pretty the majority of it. And so it didn't really matter what time of day it was. Um, you know, I would get up and start doing yard work at, you know, 6 a.m., and you know, so I wasn't. I felt very entitled to grab a beer, whatever time it was. I decided. I mean, it could be eight o'clock in the morning. It could be noon. It could be five o'clock. Um, but if he, I felt, you know, if he had anything to say about it, I was just like, you know, just get out of my face. You know, just, you know, you go do your thing. You know, you're not helping me. So, um, just you know, leave me alone. But so you know, anything working hard. Um, was a trigger for me and doing yard work and gardening and doing housework you know i and and a lot of times you know even before I started resenting that he didn't do those things with me, I was actually happy to go and do those things because it gave me permission to drink at unreasonable yeah. hours and a res- unreasonable yeah. amounts um it was like yeah. my built in um permission slip and work hard, play hard. Kind of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I work hard. A lot. I hard. Exactly. And, and and just like you, Dana, too. The other thing for me, a big trigger was I. I'm the party girl. Like I, I, I want you know. I just want to be happy in life, and I am a happy person. And but I, I felt that I needed to drink to be happy. And so, you know, I was always looking for you know, like oh, let's go, you know, let's go do this. I remember. Um, we were going to get Christmas trees, like go down and cut down Christmas trees, and we tailgated <laughs> like ten o'clock in the morning. <laughs> of course, <laughs> you know we brought. I mean, it because was like that was t- 
totally normal to me. Like, you know, I was just, I mean, anything for a party. And I was, and I was, you know, a a ringleader. So, you know, just living life and, you know, day to day, it was like, I had this built-in excuse, another, I had a lot of built-in excuses. (laughs) Um, I didn't go away to college. So I always used to say, well, it's just because I miss those party days, you know, like everyone mm-hmm. goes away to college and they party their their asses off. And I didn't get that. So I was always like, I was just making up for lost time because I didn't get to do that. Except for when I visited Ellie and almost got her kicked out. <laughs> yeah. You made up for lost time then. Yeah. As I recall. Yeah. But yeah, so it oh. was it was um you know, one of the things that wasn't just, you know, a lot of drinking for me was just because I was always looking for a good time and I was always looking to top the good time. So mm-hmm. yep. uh, that you know, that was as much a trigger for me as um the drinking, you know, drinking because I was working hard. And the other thing I used to do a lot too is drink at my husband. Um, anytime I was pissed off, I'd be like, you know, I'll show you, I'm going to have a glass, I'm going (laughs) to have a glass of wine. And that was, uh, I did that with my husband. I do that or did that back before I got sober a lot. Any sort of misunderstanding or anger and my kids, unfortunately, I wrote, I wrote notes here about, I drank if there was noise, and when I had two toddlers, often there was fighting. They're toddlers, right? And so if they had a fight, I found myself drinking. I'd be like, it wasn't really legit to drink over a toddler fighting with another toddler, right? They do it all the time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But in my head, I'd think, I need a drink to get through, or I deserve this. And so, or I would kind of do it at them or at my husband, and yeah. Oh, I can relate to that. I think it's yeah. part of part of. I mean, I in the same vein of like I deserve this. It was sort of like I felt because of the narrative mm-hmm. and this constant, you know, reality script that I had running through my head all the time. It was sort of like I felt like everything was depleting me and taking from me, and I was, you know, giving myself away all of the time. And that 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 drink, which turned into several at the end of the day, was something I gave back to myself. Like that was my mm-hmm. form of, you know, what I would call now self care or. You know, you know, it was yeah. the way that I felt as though that I mean, I got very possessive about it, very defensive about it, because this was the mm-hmm. thing that I had, and I, I think also along the lines of sort of feeling like I needed to be starring in my own show all the time. It was, and I and I definitely still struggle with this. We can talk about later in the show about how it is that we deal with these same things that happen to us now that we're sober, but. I just I want I had this constant feeling of waiting for something to happen. You know, every day is pretty much <laughs> yes. like the last one. I mean, I have to, every day at the end of the day I would be unpleasantly surprised that I had to cook dinner again and I had to do laundry again and I had to, you know, and the the sort of monotony of it, the way that I talked to myself about how monotonous it was was sort of this this dreary kind of nothing ever happens to me. I mean, in reality, life is it's happening right now. It's happening all the time. Mm-hmm. Things are, it is the way that it is, but I was trying to alter the reality of, of boredom or alter the, even, even joy, you know, let's, let's play a game, kids. Let's sit down and do something fun together. I needed to augment it. It needed to be more of whatever it was. Yeah. So, you know, if I'm yeah. angry at my husband, then a couple of drinks makes me more and good and righteously angry. Or if I'm, you know, doing the good mom thing and sitting down and playing with my kids and a couple of drinks makes me like super mom and I'm look at look at yeah. what I'm doing and I just I had to continually amplify 
everything. That's exactly the word I was thinking. Everything had to be amplified, even if it was an unpleasant feeling. Then I had to turn it up to 11. <laughs> and so right, yeah. I just needed yeah. to be over the top no matter what it was. So Exactly. Exactly. I think my biggest fear was boredom, honestly, because I I just mm-hmm. on, I couldn't stand the thought of not being bored. And you know, unfortunately, is a human. I was going to say a mom, but I think everyone. Okay, a human. It's boring sometimes when we do the same crap in and out, day in and day out. Um, mm-hmm. And it is just part of the human condition is that boredom will happen. And, you know, what we do with that, and my fear of it was just um, stemmed from a very big ego and a lack of, and a real sense of, um, like I said, I, I deserve this um, mm-hmm. crazy Budweiser light kind of life where I was on a mountain every morning hiking and then drinking beers with thin people, you know, like, it just always had to be <laughs> this total beer fest party, and I don't even like beer. I just wanted to drink wine, but they never had the wine commercials where people were hiking, so I stuck with the Bud Light commercials for that. So, anyway. yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah. Yeah, boredom was a big thing for me, too. I, I think I thought I'd in, I thought my life was boring, you know, so I had to, I had to, you know, if I was drinking, then it wasn't boring. That's, mm-hmm. I, I equated drinking with being unbored, but actually I was probably I was very boring as a drunk. <laughs> yeah, because I would just. Yeah, that's the out, irony. You know? Being drunk or drinking makes us boring. It's just that we have yeah. the ability to see it. Right. Yeah. So um, let's move on and talk about early sobriety. Um, all of the feeling situations we just talked about don't change. Just don't just change because we get sober. And in early recovery, co- coping with these feelings can be really tough. Uh, the same triggers exist, but we don't get to drink over them or at them anymore. Um, Dana, what was this like for you, early recovery? Did, uh, in, in early recovery, did you have the same triggers? Did you have the same feelings as when you were yeah. drinking? And did yeah. the emotional triggers increase because you didn't numb them with alcohol anymore? Yeah, and I have to say they really amazed me um, at the beginning. I, I kind of thought when I stopped drinking that it was just alcohol that was the problem here, and I didn't really have any mental problems. <laughs> I was, like, totally normal, except for the alcohol part, um, and that I was, you know, deep down, I was really smarter than all this, and so once I quit drinking, then, you know, click, bing, bam, boom, everything would be fine. Um, <clears throat> that, as we know, is probably the most pathetically off statement one could ever make usually about <laughs> drinking and alcoholism because it's not the alcohol. You know, the reason we're drinking is a lot of other stuff. So those triggers were still really there. Um, and in fact, for the first, I'd say, two to three months, um, they just kept coming at me. And it sort of made me think of, like, right around that time, for some reason, my husband and I ended up watching that horrible war movie. I can't even remember what it's called. It's got Tom Hanks in it, and the very first 10 minutes, like, everybody dies, they're all, what is it, Saving Private Ryan, that's what it was. Oh, yes, yeah. There's just this scene where there's this endless barrage of people blowing up, limbs flying, and I I just remember watching that and thinking kind of self-absorbedly again, this is how I feel. I think she's blowing up all around me and at me, and I don't know how to deal with any of it. Um, 
I really didn't. I was just a big, huge, walking, emotional mess. Um, now, that being said, I do feel like I, you know, that sounds very grim. At the same time, um, the triggers were there and the blow-ups were happening, but for the first time in my life, I was starting to have this little tiny, just a glimmer of real joy and real hope, along with all those scary feelings. And those mm. little moments that I had, there were a few and far between at the first, but they were so awesome that they kept me keeping coming back. You know, like I, I didn't give up and start drinking again, um, although I wanted to many, many times. Um, so I guess initially what I was thinking of this morning, I was kind of talking about this with um, a friend of mine, is that I got stronger and weaker. And what I mean by that is I got stronger in dealing with the scary feelings and the boredom and the pain in the sense that I was able to go, okay, I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling scared. I'm going to take it on. I'm going to take a breath. I'm going to say, you know, a prayer. Um, But then I was immediately able to do the weak part in that I would just say, but I'm just going to let the feeling happen. And I'm not going to do anything, actually, and try to fix it. And to me, honestly, sometimes mm. that just meant going out on my back porch and sitting down, physically just sitting down. And a lot of times I'd cry and just sit still and, and actually let myself just sit and be miserable. And I had never done that. I mean, yeah. the closest thing I can liken it to was childbirth, where I had to literally go through having a baby and I didn't want to. <laughs> and I was scared and I didn't want to feel pain. And um and of course my childbirth situation was I got a epidural like within the first hour or so. So of course I didn't release it with that. I sit, I sat with the pain for that for an hour. But um in this case I I I sat on that back stoop so many times. I'm sure my neighbors thought I was crazy and I just sat up there and cried and just thought I was going crazy and but I wouldn't get up and move again until I could, like, take a breath and then keep going. So the, the triggers were there, and they they increased dramatically. Um, right. Emotional stuff, kids fighting, noise was a big problem for me. It still is. I For some reason, I didn't realize this until I got sober. I have a really hard time with noise. And um, yeah. I have two small boys. Go figure. And so <laughs> it just escalated. And so instead of me amplifying it, it felt like everything else around me was amplifying. Right. And I had to learn how to wait and hope that the volume would eventually turn down. And it did. It took time, though. And learning that you can, that we can actually experience those things and get to the other, yeah. that they do end, and we can get to the other side of them. I mean, that. I mean, that's. No, we're not that's a practice die. I still work on. Right, it's not it's, the feelings won't kill you. They just sometimes feel like they will, and and it's and and feeling. sort of yeah. sitting in the powerlessness of not being able to change it. I mean, I totally relate to that thing about the noise. And I think sometimes what I what I've come to realize too is that it's not just the event, but what's behind it that's triggering me. I mean, my kids fight, and it's noisy, and it's it's annoying, and it bothers me. But I also realize that I am so hypervigilant and empathic that I don't like the fact that they're unhappy and I can't make them happy you know that there's I began to get a sense of the deeper meaning behind why these things were so grating and so hard for me um yeah when my my kids fight a lot of times it's because I I get so upset because I can't 
believe that my children would behave that way and I feel ashamed. And so yeah. that's why I'm actually upset, not because of the noise. So, yeah. And I think new dimensions of my my personality revealed themselves to me. I mean, you, you, Dana, you talked about the fact that it's, you know, we're drinking not just for the sake of drinking, but there's, oh, there's something behind it. There's the, the emotions and the feelings. And the I discovered in early sobriety that I'm a far more anxious person than I knew I was, that I'm a far more controlling yeah. person than I knew that I was, more perfectionisty and, you know, <laughs> sensitive. If you had asked me in my active addiction if I was a sensitive, controlling perfectionist, I would have laughed and said, I'm the most laid-back, easygoing, live-and-let-live kind of person. And <laughs> then I got sober and I realized, God, I've been numbing all of that. The reason I wanted yeah. to is because I am that way. I'm anxious and I'm, you know, things don't go the way that I want them to or I'm constantly worried about what people are thinking and, or saying about me. And I, I didn't even know that those sort of subconscious internal dialogues were were part of the equation. And those all, those all come bubbling to the surface when they're not numbed out. But I also, conversely to that, I discovered that I'm, that I'm a far more joyful person than I realized that that dreary reality show narrator wasn't it wasn't quite as wasn't quite as dire or or uh, dramatic as mm-hmm. I thought I was, I'm a far less dramatic person than I thought I was I mean mm-hmm. it was so it's not just all the 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 unpleasant stuff that comes forward it's also the things about myself that I was because we don't get to selectively numb I mean if you numb you numb everything darn it yeah <laughs> darn it <laughs> You know what's not like for um for me I didn't I didn't know how to handle my feelings um at all. Like I didn't know how to be bored, I didn't know how to be angry, I didn't know how to like I didn't realize that I just kind of just skipped over that in life. I you know, drinking just allowed me to, you know, skip past those feelings. I just kind of that was almost robotic. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, those I drank, you know, I drank a lot so I wouldn't feel bored, but it made me a very boring person because I just I just didn't engage. Like I just it was like I I did what I had to do and I I didn't realize how much I was just living in my own world. And, mm. you know, any things didn't phase me. I mean, I really uh, I until I got like, you know, well, actually they probably didn't. I don't remember half of them. Because I was known for, you know, if I got really drunk, that's when the fighting, you know, that would, it would, that's when I would fight. And, but for the most part, you know, day to day when, you know, just my, what I thought was normal drinking, I thought, you know, coming home and having two or three glasses of wine, which is all, you know, all I did sometimes. I didn't even get drunk every day. Um, but I thought that was completely normal and I just kind of glossed through life and I kind of ignored, um, numbed out the fact that you know I was really disturbed by a lot of things in my life, and I just mm-hmm. I just moved past it. Um, so I didn't I didn't know how to handle that. Like I you know I would have a feeling, and um, so I, I guess in early sobriety I really I I handled it the only way I knew how. I would have to call people. <laughs> Ellie Ellie's phone rang off the hook. You know I was just <laughs> like how do I I you know how do I deal with this? I'm going through this and. You know, and she would, you know, just, you know, just say, you know, like, go, just go through it, just sit with it, and I would sit through it. And it's funny because as I started getting better at it, and I would talk to people at meetings, I would talk about how I was feeling as things were changing, there were two things that happened. 
Um, one is that's when the video camera came on for me. I don't think I did it before mm. I got sober, but after I got sober, I would be like, hey, look at me. This is doing this. Look at me doing this sober. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I, yeah. and I, and I even, you know, I'd, and I would just acknowledge it. And then I learned that that was actually a tool. Like I learned to acknowledge, you know, I would say, hey, look at you. You're doing a good job. And um, getting through something because I wouldn't be numbing out. I wouldn't be, you know, I would just be going through it. And I and I would, I, I st- that's when I started to have this real inner dialogue with myself. <laughs> and I'm an mm-hmm. only child, so I guess that's natural for me. But it, it just, I would acknowledge, you know, you're you're getting through this. And I even called Ellie up one day, and I'm like, Ellie, I just mowed the lawn without a beer. <laughs> you know, just all these. <laughs> It was amazing to me. So I also learned to look at the joy in the small little things, like like getting through them and just doing them without drinking, you know, whether it was something that was hard or something that was fun. And um, one other thing that I did early, you know, circling back to talking about doing the fun things, is when I was drinking, one of the things that stopped me from getting drinking is I was like, I am never going to be able to go out dancing again. I'm never going to be able to go see live bands. I'm never going to be able to do any of these things that I love to do. And I was so desperate when I got sober that I was just like, all right, I well, that's all right. You know, I can just live, you know, the life of a nun and <laughs> I can be boring and, you know, but at least I won't be dead, you know, because that's about how I felt about my drinking at that point. And I quickly learned that there was, you know, people, you know, I saw the people around me in recovery meetings doing fun things. And so I didn't go rushing out and and doing the stuff that I used to do, going to see, you know, live local bands or anything like that. I, I pretty much stayed home for the first year. I didn't go do anything. But what I did do is I went to a sober dance. And mm-hmm. I remember that and going, oh, my God, I'm dancing and I'm sober. And I was like, this mm-hmm. is the coolest thing ever. And I found that I had more fun than I had ever had when I was drinking because I was completely present. And all of a sudden I realized I'm like, drinking was holding me back. It wasn't adding to anything. And, you know, when that that was, I think I was four months sober when I went to the New Year's Eve dance. And I just danced all night, and I was like, I can do this. And it was a long time before I went out and did other things, but now, you know, I can. You know, I realized it was like a big awakening for me, you know, just to go out and do that. And also going out to, you know, we'd go to a meeting and we'd go to friendlies, you know, 12 of us after a meeting. And we would sit there and talk and laugh. And I I couldn't remember the last time that I had talked to other people and laughed and had fun the way that I did, you know, in early um in early recovery. So getting out and doing things was um really just it it was just opened up my world. So well said. I can remember too that first kind of like gut visceral laugh that I had, like a really genuine sober belly laugh. Yes. And and, and just having the conscious thought like this is just bubbling out from the deepest, most sincere part of me. It had been such a long time since I 
had full access to my full range of emotions <laughs> and beginning to appreciate that. I mean, it's it's not all hard. A lot of it is, but it um, you know, the longer we can get through that without numbing or drinking or avoiding things, I mean, the, the the prize that we get for going through instead of around is, you know, the cumulative effect of that means that we have real joy and real experiences and deep friendships and deep love and it's uh it's definitely the prize for being able to sit with the hard stuff, no doubt. That was something. I mean, I got sober in 2011 and I can still remember that first laugh that I had mm. with my husband I was sitting on the couch and I started laughing and I couldn't stop and I had like the crying laughing where I was going to pee my pants kind of laughing, and I can still remember that. I mean, that was five years yeah. ago, and I and I remember thinking at the time, you know, there's drunken laughter, there's the crazy ha-ha-ha where you're on display. And, I mean, and there's always the hepped up when you're high kind of laugh, but, yeah, you're having fun in that total second kind of manic place. But this was so different than that, and it was so much more... I don't know how to explain it. It was, like, really awesome. And and I just remember laughing and then telling Brian later, like, I, I can't believe I'm able to laugh. I, I didn't know that's part of the package here. This is awesome. And, um, yeah. and it really – and I would have to agree, man, with, like, the doing stuff and getting out. I have more I, – I am an introvert. I have learned that along this way. But I have also learned that I really value people – in a different way than I did before. And so I've I've been able to really have um, some amazing relationships and fun, good times, like vacations especially. That was something I never thought I'd be able to do. And my vacations now, I look forward to them and I love them and, and they are a blast because I'm not yeah. hungover. So. Oh, that was a big one for me, too, because I love my vacations and going to the beach, and I love all-inclusives because I don't like to have to deal with anything, like, you know, with, right. as far as costs and stuff like that. And I'm like, but all-inclusive yeah. also means all-inclusive booze. And yeah. I always like the ones that had, like, all the activities and all the drinking games, and I was up there front and center participating yeah. in all of them and, and getting the awards and all that stuff. <laughs> Go you. you know, and, I, you know, getting to know, you know, making friends, quote unquote, with everyone in the resort, and just you know, the wild girl, and um, you know, going and on vacation now. I still, I have an absolute blast. I never thought I would be able to do that. Never, ever, ever thought I would be able to go away again to the Caribbean, and I've gone. Uh, a couple times, and I just I love it so much. But I also do things like I take naps. Um, <laughs> I mm. I have love really naps. good food, you know, yeah. coffee time, tea time, which I thought was ridiculous before. You know, they the one place I went had had um, tea and crepes at four o'clock, and I thought it was the stupidest thing ever, and it was the best thing ever when I actually <laughs> did it. <laughs> Yeah, I used to hate tea, and I used to hate it how my husband would always be like, can I, when I first got sober, he's like, okay, can I pick, fix you a cup of chamomile, and I want to, like, bite his head off, because I thought, <laughs> fucking, I'm oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> I'm allowed to hurt, sorry. tea. No, yeah. I tea. I'm not going to drink damn tea for the rest of my life, and it's going to help. Well, now, guess what I'm drinking right now? I love my tea, and I spend I a lot of money on tea now, but I love it. I have to say, this is a quick 
when you said, Amanda, you couldn't handle your feelings, it brought back one of my first very clear memories when I called my sponsor way back um, at the beginning because I was just feeling something I could not handle it at all. I received a wedding invitation in the mail, and it was from um, my husband's bunch of old buddies. One of his buddies is getting married. This is like a, from a heart drinking group of guys or rugby guys, etc. And my first reaction was I was incensed that they had the audacity to invite us because they had to know I was in recovery. How dare they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was like my first reaction was I was pissed because I couldn't, I was like, how could I, I can't go to this. And I was so mad. And then, uh, you know, which is really ridiculous. They had no clue, of course. And even if they did know, they still, you know, it's a joyous event, whatever. And um, I remember calling her, and just we just sat with it and talked through it, and we realized, you know, I realized how terrified I was and how angry and, and all this other stuff, and they just seemed so crazy, all these feelings over a wedding invitation, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. You know what's yeah. funny now about that, Now I actually that, get wedding invitations. <laughs> Go ahead. I was just going to say there's been, you know, there's uh, not a wedding, but in, um, there's things that people have not invited, not necessarily me, but I, it, I'm trying to think, well, yeah, no, me, you know, they'll say, oh, I didn't think you'd want to be, you'd want to come to this because it was like a drinking event. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like my work, we have a lot of drinking events, and one of the girls that organizes is a very good friend of mine, and she said, I'm going to send you the, she, she, she was really sweet. She came to me and she said, I sent you the invite. I know you don't want to go to the um, going away party at the bar, but I also didn't want to not invite you and have you feel yeah. left out. So I thought that was the sweetest thing in the world. That but, is awesome. But, mm. you know, like not being invited to the wedding, you probably would have been pissed. Oh, yeah. So then I would have been sent. <laughs> Because yeah, I mean, obviously they think I'm a you know horrible drunk slash off. Yeah, so either way, I was just kind of that ball, which is normal in the beginning. <laughs> you yeah. you have crazy feelings, and you you really so good to have someone to process them with. <laughs> well, Absolutely. it just it just like screams fear to me because it's like a wedding invitation. It's like what does a wedding mean? It means drinking. So you got that oh, invitation. Yeah. And it's like, oh my God, I'm going to be in this situation where I'm going to I'm going to want to drink, and there's going to be open bar, and I'm going to be expected to drink, and how do I say no, and what yep. do I do? And it's like, all of those like five million thoughts like blow up in your yeah. head all at once, and yeah. it's just like, well, you can just say no, like a RSVP yep. no. We didn't go, that, and I that thought I that bad. thought doesn't even occur to us. No. <laughs> I remember that because even with Brian, I, I really wanted to go to please him, and I was convinced that if I didn't go, he'd be really angry and all these thoughts and feelings. And then later when we talked about it, he said, don't go. I don't think you should go. And if you're that, because I was literally holding the envelope like it had anthrax <laughs> and, <laughs> and, like, flung it at him, like, here, <laughs> your friends are getting married. How could they? And I just remember him kind of looking at me like, whoa, this whole recovery thing is going to be way harder than we thought. But um, <laughs> but then he said, he's like, then don't go. Like, it's, you know, I'm like, oh, okay, well. And I didn't go. And honestly, I don't care. So it, and, yeah. and we got through it. But, yeah, it's just interesting how those, I remembered that. And I'm like, wow, a wedding invitation blew me up for a whole half of a day. You know what I think is really kind of cool about this 
conversation too because it, it's gosh it brings me back to so much but i think you know circling back to sort of like what all of this feels like in early recovery when all of these things you know nothing's really changed except you know the way that we feel is just like i just felt like a I was wearing my skin turned inside out. You know, everything was just, you know, wedding invitation was so much more than just an invitation. All these things, just everything's pointy and yeah. loud and scary. And and uh, so for me at least, and maybe you guys can identify with this, like early recovery felt a lot like about what I can't do anymore. I mean, I just it took me a long time to shake that feeling of like, oh, there's one more thing I can't do because, I, you know, I can't hang at the bar with my friends and I can't just go to a wedding and I can't, like, I just... You know, and that was just kind of part of this very slow kind of turning an 18-wheeler shift from things that I can't do to things that I can. And like Amanda pointed out that, in fact, by being sober, I had just opened up the number of choices and possibilities in my life immeasurably. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't or it didn't for me, and I think for a lot of people feel like that at first because it's kind of like maybe this is maybe a bad analogy, but sort of like when when I'm on a diet, like the first two weeks of my diet are all about all the things I can't eat and how everybody else can eat anything that they want and look at them and either they don't care that they're overweight or they're not overweight or they, I mean it's all comparative. It's all the sort of frame of reference of poor deprived me. But mm-hmm. if I can get through those, you know, that sort of adjust, that adjustment period and get to the point, well, well, now, wow, now I can actually, you know, run a mile and I couldn't do that before. And now I can wear these pants and I couldn't do that before. And now I have more energy and I didn't before. I mean, it's getting to that point where the possibilities outweigh the perceived sacrifices that, because our brains mm-hmm. have been trained for such a long time. If we have a bad feeling, we change it. If we're bored, we drink. If we're, you know, we, it, it takes a while to wade through those early stages, those early thoughts, because we have to experience all of these things for the first time without that automatic response of hiding or changing emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of makes me think, you know, when we're talking to people who are struggling with drinking and maybe not a lot of bad things have happened to them yet, you know, they're sort of in that stage where they know it's a problem and, and they, they really they don't they feel kind of empty and hollowed out on the inside, but they don't really, they, they think maybe it's alcohol, they're not really sure, and you know, I find myself saying a lot to people, well, these things haven't happened to you, but they will. You know, if you keep mm-hmm. going the way that you're going, they're going to happen to you. And I don't, for the for the first time just listening to the two of you talk, I thought, wow, gosh, the same thing totally applies in reverse in recovery. You know, if you're in early mm-hmm. recovery and you feel like, why did I get sober? Everything is so much worse. I feel worse. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, now I couldn't stand my mother-in-law before. Now I really can't stand her. You know, my kids bugged me before. Now they really bug me. And, you know, that these things that we're talking about, these these possibilities and these choices and the joy that we experience, it, it, it's, if you keep going in recovery, they will happen. I mean, mm-hmm. they absolutely will. It's a it's a guarantee. It's the, the challenge is that we have to, you know, adjust the way that we metabolize our world, the way that we absorb and, and think about everything and everyone. And that inner dialogue, it shifts. It doesn't shift if we totally keep it to ourselves. If we're the only ones talking to ourselves through this whole process, it can be done, but it's pretty miserable. I mean, as you've heard everybody talk about, it it really helps to have other people who understand your particular brand of crazy and anxious and sober. Yeah. It really, really helps to have those people around who can say, you mowed the lawn without a beer, you rock. You know, if you said that to a yeah. normal person, they'd be like, really? Wow, okay. That's, I did that's Halloween great. without drinking. That was huge. I remember that. Huge. Oh, like, I did Halloween. 
I called my sponsor. I did Halloween. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you need to try. Good. You need people that get it and that, you know, that get it and know what you're going through, and they know those, you know, they know how flipping huge it is to mow the lawn without a beer. That is huge. I've actually heard the mowing the lawn beer thing before, so it, it must be a thing. It wasn't for me because, again, I just well, that would wine that would mean that I was mowing the lawn. That wasn't wine out there. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. But it, I get that. You have to have a tribe or or you're gonna flounder, I think. Well and I and I think to sort of we're coming in towards the, the home stretch of the show here and I think it's important to sort of underscore a couple of things. I mean we were going to talk a little bit at the end of the show about what you know, the longer we stay sober, how we get more skilled at recognizing emotional triggers or situational triggers. We get more familiar with our internal landscape and we can develop new ways of coping. And to me, the key to all of that is is a sort of a, a self-awareness. Like there's there's this ability. Amanda, I love how you said that your video camera came on for you or, your, you know, that inner, that narrative came on for you when when you got sober because what we're depriving ourselves of in active addiction is self-awareness because that's the whole point. I mean, we don't we don't really want to self-aware we're trying you know how what's the, the best way to hide from yourself is through the numbing effects of drugs or alcohol so um you know the longer that i'm sober i can it becomes just more intuitive for me like I, I might get a little squirrely feeling about something or you know I, like dana mentioned that you i can't remember the specific example but how when you when the those you know maybe it was something about your narrative like when the, the, my inner dialogue starts to shift or change um, we've given ourselves the gift of being able to understand it and honor it and accept mm-hmm. it and talk about it. And we, we've lengthened that or we've given ourselves so many more tools between us and wanting to hide from ourselves. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you can relate to, Dana? I mean, have you found that as, as the longer you're sober, do the emotional triggers change for you? Do you find that you're... Um, you know the the sort of new recovery coping mechanisms that you have are they become did they become more intuitive for you or there's something that you're just able to fold into your day to day life? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, I still and I think for me, I really loved it, Amanda, when you mentioned that the camera came on because I just had like this huge light bulb moment. So I can pay you later for the therapy that you just provided me. <laughs> <laughs> you just like gave me about 10 more years of not having to be in therapy. Um, you're right. The self-awareness part with that little narrator that's like, huh, I'm feeling kind of crappy today and down in the dumps. Well, that's just a feeling. Like you do have those little thoughts and you do honor them that's in, in recovery. I think that's extremely important. Um, but for me, the the thing that I finally am learning or was learning way back when I was still drinking, it wasn't just awareness. It was more like absorption. Like I just wanted to suck on that feeling and like have a huge sit-down dialogue with it for about half a day. You know, oh, I'm feeling depressed. Yeah, so we yeah. really need to get depressed then and we really need to figure this out. And so for me, I thought as an intelligent woman, I needed to figure out all my quirks, all my feelings, all of it, and so I didn't pay honor to them. I, like, worship them. And so by doing mm. that, I turned myself into a big, huge blob of, well, let's 
mole on this, you know, and I, I couldn't mm-hmm. barely move for, you know, for trying to contemplate my own navel. And so at the time when I got sober and I started having these feelings, I'm like, oh, I really need to. But what I did for a while was it, the whole ignorance is bliss thing where I just sort of went, huh, well, I can't really think about that right now because I'm sober now and I'm just going to go do the next right thing. And so for about two or three months, I lived in this world of like, well, well, I'll just keep going and okay, you're flipping out about this, call your sponsor, but then just keep going. Keep, keep swimming, right? Just keep swimming. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. into it, you know, as as time passed, I started to realize, well, that's not healthy either. And you have to look at these feelings, kind of see them from both sides, you know, hold it in your hand, look at it and go, huh, and then kind of let it go. I know that sounds very loosey-goosey, but it's what worked for me. And I, I felt like... That's the one, you know, if there was one big lesson that I learned through all of this is that I I need to honor the feelings, I need to let myself feel them, but then I need to let them go. And and if mm. they're crappy and horrible and evil and bad, I need to let them go. And if they're wonderful and joyous, because sometimes for me being really happy was a huge mm-hmm. trigger. I wanted to drink. Yeah. If I was happy. Yeah. I mean, mm. when I got the book deal, I think I told you this, that was my first thought when I got the book deal was, oh, holy crap, I can't drink. Like, I can't have a glass of wine to celebrate my book about sobriety. <laughs> 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 I'm so um, oh, I And totally so joy that. also, I still have those moments where, you know, first day of spring, it was beautiful here, the flowers and the trees, and it's beautiful, and I'm like, oh, I wish I could have a margarita. And I thought, you know, they're still there. Like, like Those feelings are still there. They're still happening. But now I'm able to go, okay, all right, you're you're feeling happy, you know, but you can let it go. It'll come back. Like, I could let joy go. I could let all those happy feelings go. I was afraid they wouldn't come back if I did, but they do come back. And so do the bad ones and the scary ones, but they don't kill me. So that was my big, you know, aha, was that that narrator, I guess, is still around, but she's not half as bitchy And, like, wants to really sit and chew on that bone. My grandma used to say, you're chewing on that bone. I don't do that anymore because there really is a time to let the feeling go and go, okay, I'm totally pissed off. I don't really even know why, you know, maybe I should hit a meeting sooner, you know, go read something. But for right now, I'm just going to go have a, you know, (laughs) have a glass of water and take a walk and not mull. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes, sense. yeah makes perfect totally. sense to me. I was a champion muller and a wallower, and that was part yeah. of my syndrome of like feeling like something was at least happening to me. You know, like yes. this, that, that drama addiction, and... that chaos. Yeah, that that sort of junky urge yeah. to sort of just have it be ten or or zero. You know, instead of just Sit five. Around, and... listen to the cure and feel sad. <laughs> <laughs> Soak up all those feelings like a big huge sponge like you know a big fat sponge of alcoholism it was bad so now we let the yeah. go and we bring out the sponge <laughs> i'm gonna have my own TED talk now with a sponge and it's gonna be awesome <laughs> bring the sponge up there Sorry. I love I love go that ahead. imagery of holding it in your hand and letting it go. I mean, I think that that's it's actually yeah. the visualization exercises can be really really powerful. 
mine wasn't quite as uplifting, but I would I would sort of picture myself like hauling a giant bag of garbage around with a rope, you know, like it's over my shoulder and I'm just dragging it around. And this is part of my syndrome, yeah. all the things that I can't do now that I'm sober or, or wallowing in the shame and guilt of the things that I had done when I was active or, you know, it was just this giant bag of crap that I would haul around and, you know, and then just suddenly realizing like I, I can let go of this rope. You know, I don't have yeah. to keep dragging this around. I can just let it go. And every now and then I'll get tired or overwhelmed and I'll pick it up again and drag it around for a while. And, you know, but it's it's that freedom of choice that I have now. Like I'm not a, I'm not an automaton. I'm not a robot. I have so many other skills that I can use. And letting go of things was not one of my tools ever. When oh, I was yeah. Active, yeah. Ever. Letting go is a huge tool. And, yep. yeah. you know, even sometimes if I'm faking it, like, oh, here's me letting it go. My fists are clenched and my teeth are clenched and I'm kicking and screaming, but I'm letting it go. You know, like, even mm-hmm. if I have to sort of walk myself there with with a lot of help, but get myself to that point of of acceptance and surrender. I mean, it. you know, and we learn well, as, as we practice that, that we're not suffering as much when we can do that. I mean, there's a reward to it. I don't suffer as much when I can let it go. Yeah. I think we're told as women, especially you know, smart, intelligent women, we are supposed to figure it all out. And what I don't think we're told is that sometimes figuring stuff out means not having to figure it all out and letting it go. I don't know if that makes sense. It sounds very weird, but it, it oh, for it me, totally it, oh, it makes yeah, it was a huge release to not have to buy 50,000 books on depression and anxiety and try to figure out every little thing about why I tick the way I tick and just let it happen. Like, I'm still, I'm going to be figuring myself out until I die, and that's okay. Right. Yeah. But I still buy a lot of books on self-help. I can't help it. I love them. Sometimes just the process of buying them is enough. I don't even have to read them. I just buy them. Yeah, I just have them next to my bed. And sometimes I'll place my hand on them and go, okay, you're there. I'll read you someday. (laughs) We'll get to you eventually. Yeah. One of one of my big things is um yeah, it is letting go, but I is um accepting that I'm going through the feeling like, you know, oh okay, I have this feeling. There it is. Like I had I had a feeling today. I have because I have codependency and relationship issues definitely um where I can get hung up in, you know, others and, you know, so I had a triggery thought today, and it, it's not a trigger in the sense that it makes me drink, it makes me want to have a drink, but it's like, it's almost physically uncomfortable for me, I'm like, and I instantly recognize it, I'm like, oh, oh, there you go, because there's mm-hmm. this, you know, this five-year-old child in me that is so insecure, it's ridiculous, and it's 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 frustrating sometimes, and, you know, I saw it today, and it was mm-hmm. a brief moment, and it's something where, you know, I was even getting, you know, you know, the question, like, what's wrong? You know, what's wrong? What are you upset about? And I'm like, nothing. And and inside, I, I, it, I, I wasn't blowing it off. I was dealing with it, but at the same time, I didn't need to um, explain myself to the other person because it was it would just start, it would turn it into something that it didn't need to be because I recognized it was just, that mm-hmm. that uh, insecure child inside of me, and so I just had to kind of sit in it and just say, "No, I'm fine." And, and, it was and for in you the meantime, yeah, not anyone else. Good. What's right. That? I said, "Oh, I said it was for you to deal with." Like sometimes when I get the "What's wrong? What's going on?" You have to explain because they're part of it. But 
a lot of times I'll be like nothing because it's not something that anyone else needs to deal with. Yeah, it's, because it's, it's your thing. It's it's totally uh, you know like realizing that this is it's all in my head. It's a it, you know mm-hmm. because. The, what brings that out in me is I have this makeup story and, you know, this disaster creator in my head that, you know, just pops up randomly sometimes, you know. All of a sudden, you know, the world is ending and that was, you know, uh, you know, just something awful is being done to me and, oh, my God, I need to lash out. And, you know, old me would have lashed out or, you know, gotten, a, you know, or cried or, you know, gotten angry or cried and, you know, I just, I had the thought and I got, you know, physically uncomfortable and I sat mm-hmm. through it and, you know, and then it had a pleasant rest of the day because I let it go. Mm-hmm. And because I, I acknowledged that, okay, you're having this feeling, it's irrational, doesn't mean I'm not going to have that feeling. I'm going to have those feelings the rest of my life. It's 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 hard-grained into me. They're from early childhood and so... What I work on is dealing with them better. I don't try to be mm-hmm. perfect. I don't try to not have the feelings anymore. I don't try to, you know, like you're saying, Dana, like I'm not going to go to therapy for 10 years and and have this go away. It's not going to happen, you know, but I what I can do is I can just deal with it a little bit better and acknowledge that. And that's all I try for every, you know, every time these feelings come up is just to handle them a little bit better. And so, you know, at first, that was simply, you know, it, it just simply not drinking over them. And one of the things I've done at times, too, when I'm really upset, I'll go have a pint of ice cream. And you know what? I And I'll acknowledge that I'm, I am having a pint of, pint of ice cream at the problem. <laughs> so Eating your feelings. That's okay not drinking. Versus, <laughs> yeah. versus drinking at the problem. So sometimes, you know, I do indulge myself in... Mm-hmm. You know, and I I acknowledge that that's not really dealing with the problem. It's unhealthy behavior. But, you know, sometimes I'm allowed to be unhealthy, too. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, as long as I'm not drinking, sometimes I'm allowed to just need to shut down for a second and, and, Mm -hmm. and regroup and deal with it. I don't have to deal with everything right as it happens. I used to always think that, like, you know, something comes up, you got to deal with it, we got to get this over with, we got to deal with it. There's nothing more powerful than waiting on that feeling and saying, mm, okay, you know true. what, I can, I can deal with this tomorrow if, you know, if this is, if this is really an issue and that really bothered me, you know, I, could, I can address it tomorrow. I don't have to address it right this moment. And yeah. turns out, like, as I sat through it, I'm like, that was the it was the stupidest <laughs> thing to get upset about, and, but I also have to not tell myself it was the stupidest thing to get upset about because I I am entitled to feel that way. Like I I do have a right to my feelings, and so uh, I hope that made sense. <laughs> oh, oh my yeah. God, I I'm, I'm thinking about the fact that you that. talked about like your five year old child. Like that's that's exactly the way that it is for me too. But you know, my five year old child was stomping around a lot today internally and. You know, it is like dealing with a bossy, angry, irrational little toddler who doesn't understand at all the concept of like maybe you just should take a nap. You're tired, and things will look different in the morning. Like, like yeah. my little bossy five-year-old, you know, alcoholic, riddled, anxiety, temper tantrum throwing. She doesn't get that. She doesn't want to stand down. She wants an answer, and she wants it now. <laughs> I have a 
would love to try that on Henry and just be like, dude, go take a nap. You'll feel so much better about this tomorrow. And I know he would look at me like, what the heck? What? <laughs> this is you can't talk that way. Tomorrow. That's like a I million years know. from now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I had somebody tell me once that feelings a lot of times are like, an orange or something. I can't think of a fruit now that has to ripen, but you sometimes you do not need them. You don't want them to fester, but if you really want to deal with it properly, you can't you can't peel an orange if it's not properly ripe. You know, it's all hard and it doesn't. But then, you know, once you let it sit out in the sun for a little bit, then you can feel it real easily. And exactly. I think that's kind of what Amanda oh, was saying. And the last, a lot of times, too, it's just like you need a good night's rest in you. And then if you have to deal with the crazy wedding invitation tomorrow, then deal with it tomorrow, you know, and that's, yeah. I think sleep yep. is huge for totally. our brainwaves. So. Okay. Nothing a good nap can't fix. No, <laughs> I agree. That's the takeaway from tonight's you show. Nap or no. <laughs> if, you're, if you're in doubt, just take a nap. <laughs> yep. Good or you're off to One or the other. <laughs> Well, we have reached the end of our show again. It's amazing how quickly an hour goes. So I just, I just quickly want to go around and see if there's, if people just a quick takeaway or something that you want to underscore, or a thought that you could leave with our listeners who are listening to this, who might still be struggling or who are in early recovery, and only part of this is making sense. Dana, how about you? Is there anything that you want to highlight about tonight's show? I think the one thing I would say is I'm sorry I interrupted so much, first of all. I just can't talk oh, no. to people unless no. I interrupt them. Um, but <laughs> I I would have to say that whole back porch vision or that in my head of sitting on that back porch and just taking a breath, tell you how many times that actually worked for me. And holding my – this does sound kind of weird, but I really did do it. I would sit out and just hold my hands kind of out in front of me and just let stuff kind of float away. And – it really did, if it was important, oh gosh, it's like the poster. If it was important, it would come back to you. If not, you could let it go, and it wouldn't, mm-hmm. you know, and it wouldn't haunt you the next day. And and the other thing I would have to say is that it is kind of like Amanda said. She was a wild child before, and then I think you still are the wild child now. Well, I never mm-hmm. got to be the wild child before, and I used that as an excuse to drink. And now I'm just now figuring out really what... I'm not really a wild child. I never really had that. But my tendency to really live life to the fullest now is finally kicking in. And the only thing I regret yeah. in life now is I wish I'd done this sooner. Because, you know, I've got like a good another, I don't know how many years left on this planet. And I'm finally, you know, like when you're on a bike and you really hit that gear where you're going hard, that's where I finally am at. And I'm just so yeah. happy because I just feel like it's it's where I'm supposed to be. Oh, that's Without awesome. alcohol. <laughs> so awesome. Thank mm-hmm. you. I love that. Yeah. K- gear kicks in. That's exactly what it feels like. Amanda, yeah. how about you? Anything you want to leave our listeners with tonight? I would just say that, you know, everything that you think is not possible is absolutely possible. And, you know, getting sober, I thought, you know, you know, like you were saying, Ellie, about the, you know, with the diet, like, oh, I can't have this and I can't have that. And I thought all those things before I contemplated getting sober. I always, you know, in the back of my mind, you know, I thought, oh, I'm not going to be able to do this and I'm not going to be able to do that. And I can do all those things and more. And I can do them way better than I ever could do them before and enjoy them to the fullest because I'm not numbing anything. And so I just, life is just, so much better and 
and and even that that you know one of the biggest gifts to me like the hard times like the times that were emotionally draining and you know that would just i that you know i thought i needed a drink of because i drink over because i was so upset or or you know i was so angry or something like that I, all drinking did was make the situation worse you know now i can get through those things and i can i can speak rationally about how i'm feeling the situation always turns out better than it used to because, you know, I just have a civilized conversation and I feel about better about it and the other person does too because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not just, you know, I just don't I just don't get crazy about things anymore. I mean, I'm passionate about everything. I'm just a passionate person, but I don't get crazy anymore. And, well said, um, so, yeah. I feel like you, you're saying you add to the world instead of taking away. Like we, yeah. we put oxygen in instead of taking it out. Like when I was drinking, I snuffed oxygen out, man. I took it I took it out of the room, and I just sucked up what I could. And now, I mean, and I'm not, like, saying I'm, like, Mother Teresa now or anything. I don't go around blessing people left and right, but I feel like I add to, add yeah. to things. So. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's so beautifully said, both of you. I, I'm not even going to try to add to it because honestly that that really that really is what it's all about maybe just with the parting thought of if if you're struggling or thinking that this these things aren't because that, that's what I was like when I was still drinking or even in early recovery and I'd hear people talking about all the joyous wonderful things and I would just think yeah it's not going to happen for me and that's just the way that my brain was programmed to work and so it everything we have talked about is absolutely true and attainable and so if you are struggling, reach out for help. And uh, it's all of these things are awaiting you down the road, we promise. We promise. So as we close the show tonight, we would like to thank Dana so much for being our guest co-host tonight and being on the show again. Dana, you are awesome. Yay, thank we you, love Dana. you. Thank you and so much for having me. I love this. It's fun. Oh, so do I. I always feel so good well, after we, we love talk you. with you. <laughs> And a reminder that you can find Dana's book, Bottled, a mom. Oh, sorry. Um, I, I was saying here, the book title wrong. It's a mom's which is, guide to early recovery. Yeah. Recovery. Okay. I'm sorry. What a terrible co-host okay. thing to do. It's on Amazon.com and at bookstores, and it is freaking awesome. I love it. I've actually read it <laughs> twice now. And be sure to check out her blog, Momsy Blog. That's M-O-M-S-I-E-B-L-O-G, MomsyBlog.com. And we'd like to direct you to our parent organization, ShiningStrong.org. There you will find links to all of our resources, including the Bubble Hour and Crying Out Now and other initiatives around recovery advocacy. Visit the Bubble Hour's website at TheBubbleHour.com to find a link to many recovery resources, including Jean's blog, Unpickled, and my blog, One Crafty Mother. Our email address is TheBubbleHour at gmail.com. And please follow us on Facebook and Twitter and let us know your feedback about tonight's show and any other topic suggestions you may have. And we thank all of you for listening to the Bubble Hour and hope you all have a great evening. Thanks, ladies. Have a great night. You too. Thanks. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.